Welcome to Trending Health, where we provide you with valuable insights and perspectives on the evolving healthcare industry. Brought to you by Dynamic, Trending Health explores industry topics that are real, relevant, and worth discussing. I'm your host, Jen Burke. More than five years after MACRA, regulatory flexibility, groundbreaking care models, and pandemic-exposed weaknesses in the fee-for-service model have accelerated the pressure and renewed focus on the adoption of value-based care. I'm here with Dynamic's Minnie McGrath and Ryan Hummel to discuss where we are today with value-based care and what leaders across sectors should be considering when pursuing value as a differentiator. With about one-third of reimbursement flowing through value-based models today, this certainly isn't a new concept for healthcare organizations. We've talked on previous episodes about the CMMI announcements earlier this year about models being pooled or models being paused. But I'd love to get a little bit more into, you know, how do we get to where we are today? And why is there now so much increased focus and renewed energy around value? I, I think that that when we talk about value-based models, they are somewhat at a crossroads, right? We're seeing a lot of movement in the space in terms of, of, you know, government programs that have either been retired, they're being adjusted, or they're being rolled out. You know, it's obviously been a bumpy road since the introduction of MACRA in 2015. Um, you know, I think there's acknowledgement, right, that the value-based models are here to stay. It's just that the um, the traction that we thought they might have by now is not has not been as smooth as we had yes. anticipated. Yes. Yet there's still a commitment, right, from a government payer perspective to drive that. And we obviously have seen that translate into the marketplace as well. When you see, you know, commercial payers have have established you know numerous types of value-based models um, in conjunction with providers it's just been like almost consistently inconsistent to a certain degree and i think it speaks to the challenge right of of trying to make this significant transition in the healthcare marketplace where you are going from a system that structurally has been set up to be transaction-based into a system that's really focused on measurement, performance, outcomes, right? And accountability that looks and feels extremely different than a system that you know, for over 100 years has been structured in a, a very, you know, transaction-based full capacity methodology. Um, so that's why it feels a little bumpy right now, why it feels yep. like we're at a crossroads. And so we're either going to you know, acknowledge that there's got to be more emphasis placed on this or you're going to pull back on it. And I think one of the things that we have to look at, you know, broader than just what's going on with the contracting component of this are the is the surrounding environment around, uh, around value-based models. And like, namely, Ryan, I think that that compensation models Right, have not really reflected the way that payers and providers would like to see value-based care kind of take shape in their organizations. And I don't see them being aligned right now. Yes, Mindy, you bring up a really good point around compensation. And I think that is a very lofty target and topic to talk about. When we think about, you know, kind of the foundation of value-based contracting and value-based payments, it really kind of encompasses this idea of performance-based payment or reimbursement that's tied to the indicators of, you know, what we, what we call value, right? And that could be the patient health outcomes, 
efficiency, quality metrics, all of those things. And those are very difficult and tough to manage. So when we think about that, in order for us to really manage things in the workforce or in healthcare, typically aligning incentives around those are the way to capture those. And that has been very difficult in a, in a chasm and potentially one of the biggest reasons why we've not seen you know, large change in, in, a, in a faster adoption rate of, of value-based payment. If you think about it, for generations now, physicians and, and networks are getting paid based on um, productivity, right? The amount of productivity you do is the amount you get paid and then that gets carried over. And folks are used to that and there's a culture there. So even when, you know, in our experiences, when providers are theoretically supportive of this idea of value-based payments and the idea that um, health systems and hospitals and physician practice groups should be guided by uh, that philosophy of value-based payment, it's far more difficult. And it requires in incredible operational overhaul that I think people and folks in our industry don't understand the amount of work that would go into doing that. And, and more so, there's so many other elements that need to be uh, locked in, in order for you to really create a value-based society within a health system. You know, there's things like access to data analytics, and that has to be real time. And in order for folks to understand how they're doing or where they're going from a value-based perspective, having the access to the data and analytics is really important. We've already mentioned the idea of engagement um, with physicians and providers and making sure they are helping define the process and objectives for value-based payment and for the incentives for compensation, it is very difficult to do, to gather and garner all that support and champion that. And then also making sure that we're transparent and they are these health systems are transparent around this idea of value-based payment because it is a little bit nebulous, right? The idea of um, going from a, an area where if I see a patient and I code this visit by this CPT code, and I'm going to get paid by that CPT code. There's a very literal, logical um, process there. When you're talking about value-based payments, there's a lot more of a multivariant um, process that is involved that is difficult to maintain consistency and standardization around. Yeah, Ryan, I think about what COVID has exposed, right? I mean, it clearly exposed the weakness of a fee-for-service kind of RVU-based system. Um, and I think what we've seen over the last couple of years, right, is providers really almost trying to walk the line in terms of this transition, right? There's a comfort level in doing what's always been done with the way that, that we have thought about reimbursement. And there's been a lot of movement in terms of different types of pilots and programs and opportunities that test a variety of different value-based models. And it seems to me like we're just at this crossroads, right, where there needs to be a commitment one way or the other about which direction we're going on with value-based models. Like, personally, it, it appears that that value-based models, you know, that train has left the station and we are definitely moving along that pathway it's just taken so much longer than I think anybody had really realized. And I think you raised such a good point when you hit on the things like 
compensation has to be really reflective of how you're changing your organization to operate in a value-based world. So, you know, these things are, are, are hard. They are not, you know, flip of the switch and it's going to happen overnight, but it definitely feels to me like there needs to be a broader strategy put into place in terms of how that change and adoption is going to happen and then how you bring right your team along for for the ride because i think there's there's somewhat of a fear aspect too of you know losing resources because you're you're entering into these value-based models that just look and feel so different than what individuals are used to when it comes to reimbursement and so this change has to happen over time and sometimes it feels like there's fits and starts around it so you know i think in addition to the compensation piece of it there's there's a big element of cultural mindset that also complements you know just the way that you're thinking about compensation models and operational models in addition to the strategic model that has to I be think, adopted mindy i think that's a really good point you you bring up kind of the idea of fits and starts just off the top of my head, you know, I can think of this idea. So, you know, we do a lot of work and reading, you know, around innovation and, you know, you think about kind of places like Harvard University's Leadership Institute that talks about innovation taking time and um, you can't shift and switch and, and change a switch to your point overnight, right? This takes time and years and years and years. And when you think about that and overlay that idea of changing culturally across this country, this idea of going from fee-for-service to value-based payment, and you think of all the changes just in the last year, right? You know, you think about direct contracting, which has had a quick start, then a quick stop, and now we're hearing it might come back. CMS is ending the program known as Comprehensive Primary Care Plus, CBC Plus, and now those those health systems and, and practices are being asked just this past May to participate in either primary care first program or return to traditional fee for service. So we could go on and on about all of these things that are starting, stopping and new ways to capture value. But one thing that has always remained is this sect of traditional fee for service. So if I'm a leader in a health system or hospital, what is making me stop to think that that's ever going to change if that's still primarily the way I'm getting paid and creating revenue to create sustainability within my health system. So until those fits and starts become more of a um, kind of consistent way of life, I don't think we're going to see um, consistency across this um, anytime soon. Yeah, the one thing I think is interesting to note is while a lot of, of the value-based models have originated right out of, of CMS and the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Innovation, it has been interesting to see payers, right, commercial payers, kind of picking up elements of those models and starting to adopt them into their provider contracting. So definitely feel like this is a trend that we're going to continue to see, albeit slow. I mean, probably much slower than anybody had hoped for. And I don't want to sound like a naysayer because I do think that when you have the numbers that we're talking about in terms of, of flowing through value-based models, uh, this trend continues to take shape. Um, and I think payers, commercial payers, are probably going to be big drivers of it eventually. Uh, but with the change of administrations and just different perspectives that you see coming out of CMS, 
from a provider angle, I'm sure it feels um, a little helter-skelter at the moment in terms of where they should place their bets, how they need to, to plan for where the opportunities are in these value-based models. Um, you know, and I think the other thing that's really interesting to me is just as more providers start to adopt various forms of value-based initiatives, how they are starting to pull partners into the mix. And by partners, I'm talking about life sciences companies, right? Who for, for the first, I would say, six to eight years of value-based models really kind of were insulated, right, from what they looked and felt like because many of those models were so heavily focused on the provision of care through either a physician or a hospital's office and through the payment model that's received from them. And now I think what we have started to see is this, this expansion, right, where providers who are in value-based models are really looking at the therapy part of the equation to say, well, how does that fit when I'm taking on a level of risk? And how do I fit the therapy into my performance measures, my outcome measures, and account for that, right? And and hold my life sciences partners accountable for that as well. So, you know, it, it's interesting to see just like where we are in terms of um, the variety of models that are out there and just where the various stakeholders are in terms of the life cycle that they're at in thinking about value-based models, how they're adopted into their organization, and then how they pull partners along in, in these different models. To your point, Mindy, you know, providers aren't the only ones who are thinking about what are the implications of pursuing these value-based strategies and what changes might they have to make organizationally. You know, as many as 150 biopharmaceutical drugs are currently covered by value-based contracts with a projected growth rate of, you know, 15% in 2019 up to 20% this year in 2021. So as these life science companies are navigating, you know, how do they tie payments to real world outcomes, whether they're clinical or corollary, they're grappling with a lot of issues that are parallel to some of the ones that we're seeing in our provider networks. Yeah, and I think it speaks to the sophistication that we're starting to see in their pipelines. I mean, undoubtedly, right, um, as more and more biopharmaceutical and life sciences companies, um, start to invest in what I would say is more sophisticated science, right? The intrinsic value of their products just increases. And so now we're at a point where we are starting to see more expensive products come to the market. The way that those products actually may shift how we think about treating patients. And, you know, I'm starting to think about things like, um, you know, one-time treatments, right? Or cell and gene therapies where the intrinsic value of those products may be curative in nature. And so I think what that means for life sciences companies is that, you know, they have to start thinking from a market access perspective, how do they get more creative, right? In their contracting and in the way that they approach both payers and providers around the products that, and solutions and services that they are bringing to the market. You know, I think back, Ryan, to 
I want to say it was 2019, it might have been 2020, when we were talking about some of the first value-based models that we were seeing, and we were talking about the state of Louisiana, right, and how they were trying to address um, some of the spend in their Medicaid program around Hep C and a new product, right, that Gilead Pharmaceuticals had had brought to the, the market, and they came up with this we called it the Netflix model, right? It was this whole idea of a subscri subscription contract that was going to be used. And that was really one of the first tastes that we got about what value-based models might actually look like in the life sciences space. I mean, from there, we've started to see even, you know, more, more products that have greater intrinsic value come into the market, like Luxturna, um, like some of the CAR-T therapies, where those medications, right, are so great that um, it's not just a rebate that can be offered anymore to payers. You have to think about things like payment over time models. Um, it's thinking about other partners that maybe a life sciences company has to bring in to evaluate the actual outcomes data and report it in an unbiased fashion. It's, it's helping payers think about how a payment over time model with some sort of warranty to protect them if the product fails at some point in time with a with a patient actually will look and feel like. So, you know, I think when we are starting to talk about value-based models in life sciences, there is definitely recognition in that sector that value-based models do not only apply to providers and payers and that it is starting to be pulled forward into the product launches that life sciences companies have and into the products that they're bringing to the market. And, you know, I think we talked about market access a little bit, but to me, it's, you know, when life sciences companies are really thinking about um, value-based models, some of the things that are already competencies for them, such as patient support services, patient adherence programs, um, you know, some of the outcomes monitoring that they currently do, either through a REMS program or in their clinical studies. You know, all of those things can act as inputs, right, to some of the creativity that may come out of the way they partner with, you know, payers and providers when it's a provider-administered product to think about the value-based um, models that they come up with from a contracting and strategy standpoint. I think the nature of drugs has has changed so much over the past several years that it's no wonder that life science companies are really taking a, a much more detailed look into value-based care. I mean, whether it's like the, the, the kind of complexity of the drug, whether it's small molecule or biologic, right? Whether it's um, how it's delivered via retail or specialty pharmacy, um, all of these factors, you know, and even adding like all of the new oncology drugs that we've seen, this complexity has lent itself uh, to a new way of, of value-based care, right? And this idea that um, relying on past ways of reimbursement to the life sciences channels is just not going to work. So I see a much more revolutionary change from a life sciences perspective versus the evolutionary change in the other sectors. And that's just my opinion, but it is a fascinating juxtaposition that has occurred over the last several years. Yeah, I mean, I always think of it like um, if you're in life sciences, right, it's understanding what your customers' customers are doing because there's so much going on between payers and providers, and it's really understanding kind of what those models are starting to look like and how they might impact the products that you either have in market or have coming to market. 
then, you know, from, from that perspective, then what does it mean to your organization as you start to think about how value is viewed, right, through your customer's eyes, and then how you translate that into the way that you interact with those customers so that you can provide as much access as possible. Because ultimately it's about patients, right? And making sure that they get the right treatment at the right time with the right product. And you know, I think this is, is an area that um, is ripe for opportunity, especially with market access groups and functions within life sciences. Um, and yet it's an area that's emerging Right. So there's a lot of opportunity to be creative in this space. There is also a lot of unknown in this space. Um, and that's where I think, you know, life sciences companies are really going to have to put some time and resource into thinking about how, how value-based models look different than what they have traditionally kind of adopted in terms of their, their market access and contracting strategy. We've seen life sciences companies that we've worked with do a couple of things to help figure out a way to temper and find that balance. You know, and one way is to have a very strong centralized market access group that allows flexibility and honors the different ways that you gain market access through value across the world. And that may mean dividing up kind of ideas and future, future thoughts into buckets you know, one would be a traditional kind of bucket. A middle bucket would be some some thoughts and ideas that stretch the imagination. And then the third bucket would be kind of the art of the possible, right? And thinking about thinking about really creative new ways and testing them in a very kind of nimble way and seeing what sticks. And what that allows you to do is have the comfort of having some traditional models of, of value, um, moving forward, but also t trying and testing, you know, 10%, 20% of these new ideas to, to, to ensure that, you know, that risk is mitigated a bit. When I think about life sciences companies, right, and that the products and services they're bringing to the market, it becomes a conversation, not only on the intrinsic value of the product, but the wraparound solutions as well. And if you think about it from a payer lens, right? Like payers are perhaps not really ready, right? For the onslaught of products that might have these high intrinsic values coming to the market over the next five years. And so that's where I think the creativity has to come in because from a balance sheet perspective, right? Payers have to be protecting themselves um, and, and ensuring, right, that they have enough reserves to be able to finance these types of products. And what payers also want to know is if I invest upfront, right, a large upfront payment in a value-based model for a product that has a large intrinsic value to it, and that member leaves, or that member you know, fails on this product, how am I going to be safeguarded from making that payment? And that's when we talk about payment over time models and warranties and guarantees, it goes beyond the rebate, right? It starts to be a financial structure that looks and feels very different than what payers are used to as well. And that is where I think this idea of like 
springboarding off of the value that life sciences companies already bring to the table can start to be wrapped into this discussion to come up with creative ways in which both the payer and the life sciences company can get to a middle ground to make these types of products accessible to the right patients. And ultimately, that's what it's all about. Thanks, Mindy and Ryan. I think you make excellent points around, you know, not every product is going to be suited to a value-based model. And there'll have to be a lot of creativity, uh, partnership, and cross-sector thinking in order to figure out how do we make these types of models successful as it's not only plans and healthcare systems that skin in the game, you know, with the individual providers and the life science companies as they're pursuing more and more of these value-based strategies to compete with their advanced pipeline that's coming. So I'm really excited to see how it all plays out as these organizations think through pieces like interoperability, data and analytics to drive these models, what the compensation is gonna look like and what are the new operating models and partnerships required to really make this new system go. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of Trending Health. For links to resources discussed in the episode, to subscribe to the Trending Health podcast, and to explore if Dynamic can help your company manage ongoing healthcare industry change, visit trendinghealth.com. Tune into the next episode, where we look forward to providing you with more insights on the healthcare industry.